Well, do take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Romans and the 8th chapter. We're looking at two verses this morning, 12 and 13. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. Uh, We'll begin reading in verse 1. That's page 944 if you need to use the uh, Bible that's provided for you in the pew rack. Let's give careful attention now to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin... He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according, I'm sorry, uh, for to set, uh, verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And now our text this morning, verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh... You will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Well, the news this past week has been filled with discussions of the U.S. national debt, and if uh, the government might raise the debt ceiling or potentially default on uh, the debt by June 1st. Now, if you're economically minded or you've been listening to some of the talking heads, you perhaps have some sense of uh, the devastating ramifications of defaulting job losses, recessions, plummeting stocks, um, a diminishing value of the U.S. dollar. Uh, The U.S. has an obligation to its creditors and to default on that, say experts, would be catastrophic, a horror scenario, says one expert from the New York Times. Could there be anything worse? According to Paul, yes. 
And that would be if you and I defaulted on the debt that we owe our God, who has graciously redeemed us from sin, bought us back from death itself. If we defaulted on that debt, if we did not pay what we owe to God, if we did not fulfill the obligation that we have to God, that would be far worse because... Uh, The economy is not what hangs in the balance, but your soul is what hangs in the balance. And so we're going to consider that today under two simple headings. We want to consider the obligation we have, and then secondly, how to fulfill that obligation. First, the obligation that we have. Paul begins with this declaration. We have an obligation. That's how the NIV renders it. Notice he includes himself in the statement, so then, brothers... We, he says, this is for all Christians to hear, we are debtors. But it's not what you think. The debt is not what you think. So he immediately interjects, not to the flesh. Now, why would Paul say this? Why does Paul assume that people will think that their obligation or their debt is to the flesh? Well, he says it's because they are living like their debt is to the flesh. They live according to the flesh. Paul's asking this question. Why are you living life as though you owe some debt of gratitude to your sinful nature? Why are you living life as though you are obligated to obey sin's every beck and call? When we sin, whether we realize it or not, we are obeying the dictates of a master that we have been freed from. A master that has no say over us anymore, no control over us. I wonder if you remember the way Paul put it in chapter 6. Flip back there with me at the chapter 6 because we're going to see that his overall argument in, in that chapter is being recapitulated now in these two verses. Let's look at verse 12, start there of chapter 6. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. Do not present your members to sin as an instrument for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under the law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So what's Paul saying there? He's saying you have really one of two options. You can live obedient to sin as its slave, or you can live obedient to the law of God as God's slave. And for the Christian, there really aren't two options. There's options. There's only one Option. There's only one choice because once we are converted by the power of God, we are freed from, we're transferred out of the domain of darkness and God has placed us in the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. That's Colossians 1.13. Redemption. What does it mean to redeem something? To buy it back. To purchase it. We've been purchased by the blood of Christ. Therefore... Sin will not have dominion over you. Or as the NIV puts it in verse 14 of Romans 6, sin shall no longer be your master. Now the problem for Christians when we sin 
is that we forget that we belong to Jesus now, and we have an obligation to Jesus. Uh, we forget our master when we sin. We, it's as though we're acting, whether we realize it or not, we're acting as though we still owe some obligation to sin. You know, in the uh, South, when President Lincoln, on January 1st, 1863, issued the Emancipation Proclamation, you know, many slave owners simply just didn't tell their slaves what had happened, what had taken place. They hid the news from them. In some instances, it took years for news to reach these poor slaves that actually they had been freed. Uh, Texas is, in particular, uh, one that held on to that information for a long time. And uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll uh, celebrate. It's a new federal holiday, Juneteenth, although uh, many people have been celebrating that since 1865, which is when Texas finally uh, honored the Emancipation Proclamation. That's where we get Juneteenth from. It's when it came to Texas, even though it was declared two years earlier. And so you can just imagine, you can imagine a, a conversation between uh, one of those slaves, but they weren't slaves, really, not legally, and um, a soldier in the Union Army. See, it wasn't until the Union Army got strong enough that they could enforce the law that was already in place. You can imagine a conversation between uh, one of these workers on a Texas plantation and a soldier coming to them saying, son, you know, you can, you can put down the tools, uh, you, can, you can leave the field, you can leave the property. And the slave says, if I do that, my, my master will beat me. And he says, well, he isn't your master anymore. What, what, what do you mean? Well, President Lincoln issued your freedom in 1861. And the slave says, it's 1863, though. Well, that's right. So are you telling me for, for two years I've been working on this plantation as a slave when actually, in reality, for the last two years, I've been a free man? And the reply is, you were a free man. You are a free man. You will be a free man the rest of your life. Leave this place. Never come back. When we sin, we continue to serve a cruel taskmaster that Christ has liberated us from. He's saying, leave and never come back. You don't need to work here anymore. You don't need to be enslaved here anymore. Here's how one modern paraphrase of the scriptures conveys the idea of chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. It's Eugene Peterson. He puts it like this. That means you must not give sin a vote in the way you conduct your life. Don't give it the time of day. Don't even run little errands that are connected with that old way of life. Throw yourselves wholeheartedly and full time. Remember, you've been raised from the dead into God's way of doing things. Sin can't tell you how to live. After all, you're not living under that old tyranny any longer. You're living in the freedom of God. Paul goes on in chapter 6, if you look at verse 20. He anticipates more of what he's going to say in chapter 8. He explains that at one time, yes, we were in fact obligated to sin because we were slaves to it. And what did that get us when we served sin? He says, just a bunch of stuff we're now ashamed of. Verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, 
is eternal life. You know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like our verse, verse 13 of chapter 8. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so because life and death, eternal life and death, which is in mind here because as we've said, he's talking about the same things from chapter 6. Because life and death, eternal life and death hang in the balance Paul needs his readers to see that the obligation that we have is in no way to the flesh, to our sinful desires, to our sinful impulses. I need you to see that today. Because if you live according to the flesh, this is really important, so so listen to this. If you live according to the flesh, that is to say, if you live like a non-Christian, you will die like a non-Christian Because you are a non-Christian. If you live according to the flesh, you are not saved. It's not what Christians do. Christians will recognize they owe nothing to sin. Think of it this way, friends. What has sin ever done for you? What, What has sin ever gotten you? Sadness? Heartache, regret, loss of broken relationships, shame, grief. Sin got Moses barred from the promised land. Sin cost David a seven-day-old son. It brought the entire nation of Israel under captivity to foreign powers. What has sin ever done for you? Truly, ask yourself that question. I can give you the answer. The best thing, the best thing that sin can do for you is make you feel good for about a nanosecond. And that nanosecond is enough to earn your place in hell for eternity. The wages of sin is death. Paul has already written that in Romans 6, 23. And now he says again, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. So don't live as though you owe sin anything. You're not obligated to sin. But he says we do have an obligation. We are debtors. Well, to what? Well, Paul doesn't say. You'll notice that, right? In in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh. And so he's left off the rest of the sentence. We're expecting him to say, we're not debtors to live according to the flesh, but we are debtors to. And then he, he leaves it blank. Why doesn't he say it? Well, because he already has said it in verses 10 and 11. It's all packed there in the, those little words, the beginning of verse 12, when he says, so then, or therefore. Okay, what? So then what? Therefore what? And we go back to verse 10, verse 11, and there we learn of all that the Spirit has done for us. Although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in your Bodies dwells in you. Give life also to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. This is what God has done for us by and through the Holy Spirit. What has sin done for you? Nothing. What has the spirit of God done for you? Everything. So the debt is to the spirit. Paul doesn't finish the thought in verse 12 as a rhetorical device to actually highlight what's missing. 
It's as though it's so fundamental to the Christian life and experience that he shouldn't even have to say it. On account of everything that we've received from God through the Spirit because of Christ, do I really need to tell you to whom you are indebted to? Do I really need to spell it out? It's not sin, that's for sure. Our obligation is to God. And in particular, uh, the focus in this section is on the Spirit of God, for sure, who has brought us from death to life. Octavius Winslow puts it so beautifully. He says, what do we not owe him in ways of love and obedience who awoke the first thrill of life in our soul, who showed to us our guilt and sealed to us our pardon? What do we not owe him for leading us to Christ, for living in our hearts, for his healing, sanctifying, comforting, and restoring grace, for his influence Influence which no ingratitude has quenched, for his patience which no backsliding has exhausted, for his love which no sin has annihilated. Yes, we are the Spirit's lasting debtors. We owe him the mind he has renewed, the heart he has sanctified, the body he inhabits, every breath of life that he gives, every pulse of love that he has awakened. To the flesh, We owe nothing but uncompromising hatred. To Jehovah, we owe undivided and supreme affection. Some of our best hymns have captured this as well. A debtor to mercy alone, of covenant mercy I sing, or oh to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Our obligation is to God. Because of all that he has mercifully and graciously done for us. And so now the question is, how can we possibly fulfill it? We've seen our obligation. Now we want to know how can we fulfill it. And Paul states the answer in verse 13. And he puts it negatively. He says what we need to do is to put to death the deeds of the body. Another way of stating it would simply be, stop sinning. That's how you... Fulfill your obligation to God. Stop sinning. Or if we put it positively, it would be, be righteous. Be righteous. But the way that Paul states it is important. Put to death the deeds of the body. Think about that phrase with me for just a moment. Uh, He's being really practical here. We've been tracing throughout Romans 8 the times that Paul uses the word flesh, sarks, the times he uses the word body, soma. And we've said that flesh stands in for sinful nature, and body means, well, our bodies, right? And that's the word he uses here. He uses body, put to death the deeds of the body. So he's not saying, put to death your sinful nature. No, he's being much more practical than that. He's saying, stop doing stuff with your hands and with your feet and with your mouth and with your eyes and with your brain. That is sinful. Stop sinning. Now, the old theological term for putting to death the deeds of the body is mortification. Mortification. Talking about mortifying sin. That means to put sin to death. Death. It does not mean, to mortify sin does not mean to ask sin, could you kindly leave? I... I think you've overstayed your welcome. Would you mind leaving my life? 
Uh, it's not mortifying sin does not mean excusing sin. It does not mean trying to um, hide sin. It doesn't mean trying to tame sin. It means choking it out. It means killing it. John Owen, uh, the author of the classic Mortification of Sin, is the expert on this subject. He says, to mortify means to, quote, take away from sin the principle of all of its strength, vigor, and power so that it cannot act or exert or put forth any proper acting of its own. And so that's what Paul's calling us to here in this passage. He wants us to kill sin, to put sin to death. It's a death that leads to life, paradoxically. Did you notice the interesting way he framed verse 13 with this uh, mirror language where he says, if you live... According to the flesh, you will die. But if you make sin die, you will live. There's a death that leads to life. A life, though, also which leads to death. Living after sin leads to death. But if you put sin to death, it leads to life. And so since that is so, what do we need to know about this kind of death that Paul is exhorting us to in order that we may live? And I'm going to say three things here about mortification. Um, What does it mean to mortify sin? What does it mean for me to take verse 13 and put it into practice in my life? To put to death the deeds of the body. And to make it really meaningful for you. um, As helpful for you as possible. What I want you to do is to actually think about a sin that you are allowing to live right now, currently. A sin that that you have given space in, in your heart. I want you to think about that sin. Think of that deed, a, a, a deed of the body, right? Something you say, something that you do, something that you look at, something that you think about that needs to be put to death. And now apply these three principles about mortification to that sin in particular. So we all have that sin. If, it's, if, it's, if you're having a hard time thinking of that sin, we need to talk after church, okay? It should not be hard. We have plenty of sins we need to put to death. Pick one. First principle, mortification is a pressing business. It's pressing. By that, it's, I mean it's urgent and it's serious. It needs to be done now and it needs to be done entirely. And the reason that it's pressing is because it's threatening your life. Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. One of Owen's most famous lines, most quoted lines, is in the context of this uh, reality. So from his book, he says, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? You must always be at it while you live. Do not take a day off from this work. And here's the famous line, always be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Always be killing sin, or it will be killing you. And the fact that Paul says we must put our sin to death gives us a sense of the, of the sinfulness of sin, of the seriousness of sin. It's not something we play with. It's not something we negotiate with. It does not uh, take half measures. It requires full measures. That's what Jesus taught, by the way, right? If your hand causes you to sin cut it off throw it away why because it's better that you go maimed into eternal life than you have all of your body parts but you go to hell sin poses such a threat to us that the only proper response is to kill it that's the only proper response now in the state of michigan uh, like many other states 
we have what, what's known as the castle doctrine of self-defense. Maybe some of you have heard of that. It says that homeowners are allowed to use deadly force um, to protect themselves from an intruder if they have, and this is what the legal code says, let me read it to you, quote, an honest and reasonable belief, that's important, an honest and reasonable belief that imminent death, sexual assault, or great bodily harm to themselves or another will occur. Now, do you know what that means? It means that while you have some um, um, allowance under the law to use deadly force, it also means that if someone breaks into your house and they start running away when they see you brandishing your firearm, you cannot shoot them in the back. Because if they're running away, you would not have an honest and reasonable belief that imminent death or harm is coming to you. They're leaving, after all. It doesn't matter that they broke into your house. You can't do that. And there are other instances where a jury might decide that somebody who fired and killed an assailant in self-defense did not have an honest and reasonable belief that they were in real danger, and they therefore used their deadly force inappropriately. So people who carry a firearm have to weigh the consequences of using it in a situation where it might turn out it wasn't serious enough to use it. It is always serious enough. Sin is always serious enough to use deadly force. You always pull the trigger. You always aim to kill. Because sin is not just looking to steal some money, hijack your car, or even take your life. It wants your soul. Because of that, killing sin is always and only the appropriate response Mortification is a pressing business. Secondly, it's a personal business. That is, it's something that we need to do ourselves. Paul says, you put to death. Right? You put to death the deeds of the body. I can't kill sin for you. You can't kill my sin for me. Uh, sanctification, mortification is not a let go and let God moment. Sanctification is not just sort of floating about in the Christian life. And, you know, when God wants me to be done with the sin, he'll, he'll take care of it. And I don't really need to do anything. Yes, we are kept by Christ undoubtedly, but we are still called to actively, personally pursue holiness and change. So, what can you do? To mortify sin. What are things that you can do? Let me give you the three most important things you can do. First, read the Word. You can read the Bible. It's called uh, the sword that pierces between soul and spirit. A sharp two-edged sword, after all. And that means it's a lethal weapon when wielded by the Christian. Because it destroys besetting sins. So you can and you must read your Bible. If you want to mortify sin. Well, you say, but I've read my Bible, Pastor. And I still keep sinning. Give me something more to do. I want more practical tips. It does not get more practical than that. I'm not going to give you more tips than reading the Bible. Actually, okay, I lied. I have two more. But I'm not going to say that that one isn't enough. That's my point. The Word of God is living. And it's active. Keep returning to that Word. Jesus prayed to the Father for his disciples. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. How are we sanctified? In God's truth. Where's God's truth to be found? In the Bible. 
That's why I say, just by way of reminder, turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 8 for this summer. You need to be reading your Bible. Now, famed American author William Faulkner was once asked by a reporter, some people say they can't understand your writing even after they have read it two or three times. I don't know if you've ever read Faulkner, but I am one of those people who would have said that. Um, Some people say they can't understand your writing even after they've read it two or three times. What approach would you suggest for them? And his reply, read it four times. And so it is with the scriptures. We keep coming back to God's word over and over until we store God's word up in our hearts so that we might not sin against him. I'm sure many of you know by now uh, that um, we prayed for it earlier, and if you follow me on Facebook, you know that I've been affected by the recent passing of Tim Keller, who was a a hero in the faith uh, and the greatest Presbyterian thinker of the 21st century. And uh, he, he spoke to this subject about the power of God's word. He said this, When God speaks, it happens. God's word is a power. God's word is not like our word. We say something, but then we have to do it. God's word is his act of power. And when you hear God speaking to you in his word, when you study his word, when you hear his voice in his word, that is his power coming into your life. Read your Bible. Second, pray to God. Through prayer, we ask the Lord to show us sin for what it actually is, to lead us to victories over, to to let the new man triumph over the old. Phil Riken says this, many Christians are much too general when they pray against sin. They say that they're sorry about their sins, and they ask God to help them stop committing it, but, but really that's about it. They're not really praying to win, and thus they continue to sin. He says, they do not intercede with the deliberate intention to see the expiration of their iniquity. Can I read that last sentence again? They do not intercede with the deliberate intention to see the expiration of their iniquity. We need to pray specific prayers, hard prayers, but prayers that show we really hate our sin. Lord, I was overcome with envy again, again, Lord, when I was speaking with a friend this past week. She's got her life all together. She thinks everything, she makes it seem like everything's perfect. And I see the Instagram post and then we talk and and it just seems like her life actually matches up with her social media. And I, I wish I had her life. And I hate that feeling, Lord. I hate that, that that envy, that jealousy keeps coming back up. Lord, I'm sinning against you when I do this. I need you to crush that, that, that discontented spirit and make me love all the things you've provided for me. You say, holy God, I can't believe I'm coming to you again on this. I'm so ashamed that I have, I have, I have succumbed to that sin of looking at pornography again. I, I thought we were done talking about this and here I am again Lord and I'm ashamed and I want to say I've sinned against you I want to say I've sinned against my spouse I want to say I've sinned against the people who are in those videos and I did not treat them like image bearers of God Lord this is a wickedness that's in my heart and you are the one 
you are the only one who can free me from it. Yes, I need forgiveness, but I need freedom more. Please, that's what I'm feeling. I need that freedom right now. Give it to me. Do you see the difference between that prayer and the prayer we say at dinner time? Forgive us for our sins. Amen. They're both good prayers. It is good to ask the Lord to forgive you for your sins. But if you really hate your sin, you'll pray that former kind of prayer. And not the latter wrote, you know, prepared sentence or two that you're not even thinking about. You're not thinking about the sins that you're asking for for forgiveness for as they come out of your mouth. So confess fully. And remember, Romans 8 tells us why we can confess fully. You can confess fully when there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. God knows it all already, and he's promised full forgiveness. Now ask him for freedom. Pray to God. Third. Go to and join the church. So read, read the Bible, pray to God, go to and join a church. These are things that you can do, you must do. In the church, you receive the company of saints, and it's often through the influence of other godly people that we become godly ourselves. Furthermore, through membership of the church, you have spiritual oversight. You have elders exercising church discipline who want your growth and grace, sometimes more than you want it. Most importantly, you have access to the sacraments which picture for us the death that Christ died to forgive us and to free us from that sin we keep going back to. Paul says that in baptism we're buried with him in death. In the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine are tokens of the, 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 the excruciating pain that he endured on the cross. When we regularly encounter these, how could we possibly enjoy the sin that made our Lord languish at Calvary. Mortification is a personal business. You say, what can I do? Read your Bible, pray, go to church, join a church. Well, there's one final thing, and we're truly closing up with this, and it's the most important thing. Mortification is pressing. It's personal. But this verse teaches us that it's also possible. It's possible. It's possible because Paul says we do it by the Spirit. Again, verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, is that a contradiction with what we just said? It's personal. Now we're saying it's the Spirit? No, not at all. There's no contradiction. When you choose those means we've talked about, Scripture, the prayer, the church. When you choose those means, the Spirit is the one who uses those means to bring sin to death and righteousness to life in us. And this is good news. It's no news at all to say that godliness is necessary. We all know that deep down. But it is good news when we hear that godliness is not only necessary, but it is possible. It's actually going to be accomplished because God will see that the work is done. He will do it himself in our hearts. He, the Spirit, will make these means that we've talked about effectual to the putting to death of sin and the bringing to life of righteousness. The Spirit is the instrument by which we put sin to death. If it was just up to us, we would lose every single time. But now, victory is not only possible, it is guaranteed. As John says, 
For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The spirit that is in you is greater and more powerful than the sin that you are fighting. So dear believers, know today that you have everything you need to put that sin. You were thinking of a sin, right? You put that sin to death. And you owe it to God to do so. So dear Christian, remember and rejoice that you are not your own. But you were bought with a price, the precious blood of God, poured out on the cross by his son. You are not your own, but you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Let's pray. Our Father, we acknowledge that talking about sin is difficult but it's necessary. And we're grateful, since sin is a reality, that you have not left us without a resource to deal with sin. You've given us your word, and we've heard today how you have given us your spirit, the spirit that will cause us to treasure that word and to put that word into action. The the spirit uh, whose word it is, we, we call the Bible the sword of the spirit. We pray that by the spirit we would indeed slay Satan and his uh, sinfulness, uh, his sinful agenda in our hearts, that we would take mortification seriously, that we would take the debt we owe to you for all that you have done for us seriously, and that we would be motivated by love for you uh, to do the things that you are calling us to do. We thank you for your grace. And we are thankful that we can sing, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Lord, would you now, by your grace, bind our wandering hearts to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.